Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Evanston, Illinois. With us is Rebecca Kukla, professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, where she is also a senior research scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. And she is here to talk with us about reproductive risk. Rebecca Kukla, welcome. Thanks. How did you come to be interested in this question of reproductive risk? Well, I never particularly expected to be writing on reproduction, actually, as a philosopher until I got pregnant. I, before that, had interests, which it's now clear to me in retrospect, are all interests that are circulating around these issues. But I was interested in social epistemology and in philosophy of science. I was also interested in the history of the body and the way that our sense of identity partly comes from the kind of body we have and how that body is planted in our culture. All of those interests were already in place, but I didn't think of them as applied ethics interests particularly until I became pregnant. And when I did, I found myself in a completely unexpectedly bizarre world where, on the one hand, it was strongly expected of me that I was going to be managing my every movement and every bodily gesture through a kind of lens of risk, where everything I did was to be framed as something that would make risks to my unborn baby either go up or down in some subtle way. And it was an entirely new way of moving through the world to suddenly see myself as a risk manager with every bite of food I ate and with every product that I used on my hair and with every kind of exercise that I did or didn't do. And I became fascinated with that from the point of view of something like applied philosophy of science. How do we think about how science interjects itself into our bodies and into our lives. At the same time, I got fascinated by the fact that as a pregnant woman, I was bombarded by this whole new set of images that were non-optional in a lot of ways. Ultrasound images of the inside of my body, pictures and advice books of what I was supposed to look like, how my body was supposed to be shaped, images that doctors wanted to show me of various DNA mutations and this, that, and the other. And I realized that I was coming to understand myself through this set of third-personally available, culturally available images, which were actually quite bizarre in a number of ways. And I got rhetorically fascinated with how those images were being used to shape my sense of self as a pregnant woman and somebody who's about to be a mother. And frankly, I just felt like I couldn't help but write about it philosophically. I couldn't not interpret this as a philosophical issue. And that ended up starting what turned into what's now been more than 10 years of writing about these issues, even though I haven't been pregnant for a long time and no longer have an infant. So one particular example of something that you've written about is a law in California that's known as Proposition 65. So maybe you could just explain in basic terms, what is that law? What does it mandate? 
Yeah, sure. Um, it's a fascinating law that has gotten interestingly virtually no attention from scholars and virtually no attention from bioethicists or other kinds of practical ethicists. It's a law that dates back from the 80s, and the essence is that businesses and makers of products and owners of public spaces either have to prove that their product or space falls below an incredibly, incredibly low threshold for presence of toxic chemicals for it's now close to a thousand different substances. And these are chemicals that are either theorized or have been shown to pose some amount of reproductive risk, although sometimes it's very tenuous, the evidence. They either have to show that their product or space falls below the level on all of these different chemicals, or they need to post a warning that says, basically, that their space or product poses a reproductive risk. Originally, the idea was supposed to be that this would give an incentive to businesses to, of their own accord, make their products or their spaces safe, because nobody would want to have this label. What, in fact, happened was that the demands for compliance were so stringent that slowly businesses just started opting for putting up the warning. And now the warnings are so ubiquitous, so incredibly ubiquitous. Actually, Californians often don't notice them until I point it out because they're so everywhere that they've stopped seeing them. They're so ubiquitous that there's no longer any stigma to putting up the warning. So almost all corporations just opt for putting up the warning and don't do the testing. And what the warnings say, again, is this space or this product may pose reproductive risk to your unborn child. There's different wordings that are allowable. And you see this sign or this little label on food products, in hotel lobbies, in restaurant lobbies, in really almost any kind of product or space you can imagine. So it's just really part of the California landscape at this point. So one might think that this law, although it hasn't really served the purpose it was supposed to serve, can't be a bad thing. You might think that surely it's not a bad thing if we know about risk. Mm -hmm. Better to know than not to know. So what is it that you think is problematic about this law and the signs that have been displayed? Yeah, and just to play devil's advocate on your behalf for a moment before I answer, it's not just that we tend to think that knowledge is better than lack of knowledge, but we tend to think that knowledge goes along with informed choice and hence with autonomy. That the more you know, the better of a position you're in to make a free informed decision about whether you want to go into that space or consume that product of wherever it, or whatever it may be. So there really is a lot of imagination and rhetoric on the side of supporting something like this. I think it's problematic for several different reasons. For one thing, the warning is only about reproductive risk and also carcinogenic risk, by the way. It's actually those two things. But it's picked out those two kinds of risk, risk to unborn children and carcinogenic risk, to the exclusion of any other kinds of risk. There's never been much justification given for that. But if nothing else, that seems to give the message that managing reproductive risk is a different, weightier kind of project than managing other kinds of risk. And that's an assumption that needs to be at least thought about critically, given that risks to people throughout their life cycle would seem to be worth worrying about. There isn't any obvious reason why risk to fetuses is more important than other kinds of risks, though we tend to assume that without question. Some of the other reasons it's problematic, though, I find more 
philosophically interesting. One is, if you think about what that sign says and means, it says there may be harmful chemicals in this space. We haven't proved otherwise. That doesn't tell you which chemicals, what their harm may be, in what quantities they're there. In fact, it doesn't even tell you if they're actually there or not. It just tells you that they haven't bothered to test to see if they're there, uh, what kinds of possible harms you're looking at. And so a pregnant woman who's faced with this sign is actually not given the kind of information that's usable in practical deliberation. She's not given anything from which she can make anything remotely like a rational decision as to how much risk she's facing and whether it's worth it. And that matters enormously for at least two reasons. One is that gets joined, as we were just saying, to this language of individual choice and autonomy. So she's being told that she's being made more autonomous by having this information, but at the same time, it's information that's likely to... Um, As a matter of fact, in California now, she's probably not going to notice it at all. But if she is going to notice it, it's likely to make her feel worried, perhaps guilty, insecure, unsure, but not to give her the kind of information that could possibly be useful for her in reasoning. And so it doesn't actually enhance autonomy. The other issue is oftentimes consuming a product or going into a space comes along with benefits, not just for her, but perhaps for her own born child. So one example that I've talked about that I love is that there's one of these Prop 65 warnings on the door to the UCSF prenatal clinic, which is one of the premier prenatal clinics in the world. Presumably, using that prenatal clinic comes along with substantial benefits for your baby. Otherwise, it wouldn't be one of the premier prenatal clinics in the world. So if a woman is looking at this sign and she's got to decide how much benefit to my baby do I get from going into this clinic versus how much risk do I face from going into it, she literally has no basis for making that decision. So it's not just a matter of she doesn't have a good amount of information for deciding how much risk she's willing to take. It's that she can't even tell if abstaining or going for it would be the more or less risky choice, right? So in fact, I think that uh, these signs distort practical reasoning. They not only don't help it, but they make it impossible in various ways. And at the same time, they make it feel like it's women's responsibility to be the ones who reason well and make a responsible decision in the face of them, which they're really not being given the option of doing. So I really think it leaves them stranded. Another thing you've written about is the limitations that this law puts on pregnant women's ability to inhabit public spaces, which is presumably an important component of what it is to be a citizen in a country, is to be able to be at certain places at certain times. What are some of those concerns? Yeah, that's exactly right, because after all, it's not just Prop 65 warnings. If this was an isolated case, it wouldn't be that interesting. Our social world is littered with reproductive risk warnings of various kinds, either explicit ones that are stuck on bottles of alcohol or on the doors of prenatal clinics or implicit ones. And I think that the collective impact of that is it gives pregnant women a really different problematic relationship to public spaces and social opportunities than other citizens have. All of the sudden, pregnant women are in a position where they need to question whether they are being responsible moral agents by making use of the spaces and products that everybody else does. And if they decide that they can't use a product or enter a space, I'm especially interested in space in this context, if they decide that they don't belong in a space because it's too risky, then that 
in a really real way cuts down on their ability to participate fully in social and public life in a way that I think matters. I mean, this has become less common, though it's not as uncommon as you would think, but it used to be that we asked pregnant women to basically just take to their rooms for the entire nine months of pregnancy. By the way, this idea of reproductive risk goes very far back, and and, um, part of the reason we asked women to take to their rooms is because there was this theory of the maternal imagination, which was that if they saw anything that stimulated their emotions, it would literally mark the body of their baby. So if they saw a food that was really delicious, then their baby would have a birthmark in the shape of the food. Or if they saw a man of another race who was sexually attractive, then their baby would become partially raced, which, by the way, is fascinating, and we could talk about that all day if you wanted to. So it was seen as important to sort of keep them shielded from any kind of stimulation so that they wouldn't harm their babies. And I think that this kind of world of reproductive risk warnings is really in a lot of ways just the 21st century version of that. And so there's a real exclusion that happens, and I don't think it's theoretical. I think if you talk to pregnant women, they feel it acutely. They feel like they don't belong in the world in the same way as other people belong in the world in a very concrete sense. If you add that to the fact that Pregnancy, especially first pregnancy, for many, many women is a time of kind of radical overhauling of our identities. Regardless, that transition to being a mother, especially given the incredible social weight that's placed on it and the incredible set of social expectations that comes with it. And the way we've set up being a mother, especially of an infant in our post-industrial 21st century world where mothers are supposed to change their social life, they're supposed to change their personal lives, they're supposed to really radically restructure everything about their identity. As you're going through that identity shift, which is very, very difficult for a lot of women, to feel like you don't belong in the world around you in the same way as other people do, or like that world is fraught with special moral and physical danger for you, is I think a very powerful Experience and one that I suspect, although this is you know me speculating, I don't have data to prove this. I suspect it's at the root of a lot of postpartum depression and other serious challenges that pregnant women face. One context in which this issue that you're talking about about public space comes up is in the issue of drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. which we've we mentioned briefly, and being in in bars. One thing that you've written about that I found very interesting personally was that. Whilst it's not clear whether there is any risk at all in pregnant women drinking small to moderate amounts of alcohol, there are clear risks associated with Mm fathers-to-be drinking alcohol that pregnant women, I think, you've written a 60% more likely to suffer from domestic abuse and that domestic abuse is eight times more likely when the male partner has been drinking. And yet there is no kind of restriction put upon the movements or the activities of male partners with respect to this risk factor. So does this seem like one of the ways in which the burden for managing risk is shifted exclusively onto mothers as opposed to anyone else involved in the process? Yeah, this is an issue I feel very passionate about, especially as an alcohol lover myself. (laughs) And actually, I can't resist two quick anecdotes before I answer the question. One is, 
I'm a certified sommelier, and I did a separate little undergraduate degree in order to become that, and I did the last year of my program while I was visibly pregnant. And it was really interesting just seeing the reactions that people had to me. I mean, when you're doing this, you're taking little sips of wine, and you're spitting them out a lot of the time. And over the course of a three-hour class, I would probably consume the equivalent of one glass of wine, maybe. But the image of a pregnant woman in there doing this got really, really strong reactions from people and was really interesting to live through. The other anecdote is that I feel so passionate about this issue that our risk reasoning around pregnant women and alcohol is completely messed up, that my friends who are pregnant, if they fail to order a drink when they're with me, they get apologetic. So if we're out and I order a drink and they don't, they're like, I know, I know, I know it would be fine. I'm sorry. (laughs) So it's really an interesting reversal. But yeah, I mean, we have, since the 70s, people have tried to find evidence. And I mean, really have tried and tried to find evidence that light to moderate drinking in the context of a generally healthy lifestyle comes along with risk to fetuses. And they have just flat failed. There's overwhelming evidence by now that it's safe just by default because no matter how hard they try to find some way in which it's not safe, they fail. And of course, one of the rhetorical tricks of this whole little world is that you can never prove that something is 100% safe. That's a scientific impossibility. So they love to use the line, no amount of alcohol has been proven safe, which is just to sort of play around with null hypotheses and things like that. But it's as safe as anything could be. And yet most countries still have these very stringent warnings that pregnant women should drink zero alcohol whatsoever, better safe than sorry. And then meanwhile, as you point out, moderate drinking on the part of fathers is known to be a really dramatic risk factor for fetuses and unborn children. So there really is an odd inequity there in terms of how it's posed. And I think that what we're seeing here is another case, a really vivid case, where we want to frame reproductive risk as about individual autonomous lifestyle choices. Of course, we could focus on men's individual autonomous lifestyle choices, but we're used to thinking of, and we have hundreds of years of history of this, we're used to thinking of the pregnant woman and then the new mother as the sort of focal body where those individual autonomous lifestyle choices happen. So when we think about a problem like fetal alcohol syndrome, we have an overwhelming desire to frame that as a problem about mothers making totally optional, somewhat selfish, somewhat frivolous, in any case, utterly free and unfettered choices. And that's where we target our energy in terms of solving the problem. What we actually know is First of all, like you pointed out, that domestic violence is a much higher risk to fetuses than any kind of alcohol-related problem. But if we just stick to alcohol for women, what we actually know is that the biggest risk factors for fetal alcohol syndrome are poverty, cigarette smoking, and various kinds of emotional stress that tend to go along with poverty. If you want to predict which babies are going to have fetal alcohol syndrome, we don't even actually need to look at alcohol. That's where we should be looking. We also know that only women who have serious substance abuse problems end up having babies with fetal alcohol syndrome, and that tends to go along with poverty and all of these other things. So if you really wanted to solve the problem of fetal alcohol syndrome, what we should be doing, first and foremost, is dropping all of the emphasis on particular drinking choices and looking at systematic 
conditions of poverty, poor nutrition, stress that goes along with poverty and things like lack of food security, which are really just provably scientifically where the biggest risk factors lie. But that doesn't appeal to us because we're used to thinking systematically about ethics and politics in terms of a language of individualized responsibility and individualized autonomous choice, it feels much easier to intervene on people's choices than to change the entire structure of capitalist society. It gives us a handy moral language of blame and responsibility that we can use. It gives us a logic that we're all familiar with about how to talk about blame and moral responsibility. And so for all these reasons, it's just very, very difficult to shift that discourse. As an interesting aside, I think that, um, of course, we feel like changing individual choices is easier than changing the whole world, but we're actually pretty crappy at changing individual choices, too. Most of the means that we have of doing this, um, you know, using shame and public service announcements that target choices that people make, turn out to be almost useless in terms of changing the choices of people who are actually at risk. They may make people who are not attached to the alcohol to start with, get paranoid and have one fewer drink. But the people who are actually at risk are not impacted by PSAs and by that kind of individualized messaging. And we know that, and yet that continues to be our primary technique for trying to adjust for problems. And I think that that goes really deeply into how we imagine moral problems to start with, frankly. We think individualistically, we do not think systemically. So if I'm understanding your position correctly, it's something like, sure, there are concerns to be had about the safety of unborn fetuses, and sure, the uh, women who are pregnant with said unborn fetuses have a role to play in trying to keep them safe, and therefore some responsibility. But really, the responsibility is not theirs alone. Other parties as well are responsible in keeping things as safe as possible for unborn fetuses. So who exactly are those other parties, in your view? Well, I guess before I answer the question directly, it's worth, I mean, I don't want to sound like a monster. Obviously, we want to keep fetuses safe. I would never (laughs) deny that. But I do think that our fixation and fascination with fetal safety is a kind of a romantic idée fixe to some extent. It's not in proportion to the real risks that are going on around us. So yeah, I'll go with you. Yes, we want to keep fetuses safe. But the amount of social energy we put into that, given that we're not that interested in keeping children safe, we're not that interested in keeping adults safe, we're not that interested in keeping elderly people safe, is a little bit strange and a little bit overblown given the reality. But in terms of the best way of creating a world where we have healthy children born, What we need to be looking at are things like environmental hazards, are things like poverty, and we know full well that the biggest differentials in terms of birth outcomes track socioeconomic difference. They don't track what choices women make about what hair products to use or what to drink. They track 
how women and their partners, if the partners are in the scene, are on the scene, are planted within a social world that's inherently riskier for some kinds of people than it is for others. So I would like to see an enormous amount of the language of reproductive risk and choice over what to do just sort of shelved, not eliminated, but put off to one side while we work on first and foremost, environmental and economic issues. And I think if we really created a better world for ourselves, which was environmentally safer and had more economic equality, most of the reproductive risks that we're concerned about would go away on its own. If you look at countries like Scandinavian countries and so on that have better, safer economic and environmental infrastructures, you find way better birth outcomes. It's just that simple. I want to pick up on one thing that you said there, which is that one of the things that we can do is to start using a different kind of language mm-hmm. or stop using a certain kind of language. And this connects to other issues that you've written about in the philosophy of language, about how the kind of language that we use can play a role in constructing the spaces in which we live. Yes. I wonder if you could say something about how that work in philosophy of language ties in to these more practical applied concerns. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that got me so fascinated in these issues when I was pregnant was how the messages that I was receiving were structured from a rhetorical point of view and from you know, to somebody who who was already interested in philosophy of language issues. In many, many different parts of my work, I've long been interested in particular in second person speech, in speech that's designed either explicitly at the level of its grammar or at the level of its pragmatic function in one way or another that is designed to speak to you, to reach out and speak second personally to its audience. And one of the things I'm interested in is the way that that kind of second person speech can function as a really powerful mechanism for shaping and creating people's sense of self and their sense of how they're positioned in the social world. Many of the messages that we see out there that are targeted at pregnant women, which is the case I got interested in, but really it's a much broader point about how messaging works socially. I just think pregnant women are an especially vivid test case. Many of the messages that are aimed at pregnant women really hammer home that second-person voice. So if you watch... Uh, public service announcements, or if you look at ads, a lot of them look straight out at the audience and say, you care about your unborn child, you want the best for your baby, so you know that you have to do this or you have to do that. One of the things that's really interesting to me about the way that that kind of second personal contact works is that it's asking you to recognize yourself in the way you're being described. So when that public service announcement looks you in the eye and says, you want the best for your baby. It's asking you to recognize yourself as, yes, that's me. I'm the one who wants the best for my baby, of course. So this ad must be speaking to me. But part of what happens there is that we shape our sense of who we are through how we get recognized by these different kinds of second personal speech. And so you can use these images and messages as, and I'm not suggesting that anybody's masterminding this intentionally, this is something that's happening at the level of the culture, but this wide array of second person messages and second person speech interventions give 
pregnant women this very specific sense of how they are already recognized as being. And by finding themselves in that, it sharpens their sense of who they are, what their moral responsibilities are, what kind of a person they are, how they belong in the social world around them. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a time when their identities tend to be going through overhaul anyway. So I think that they're particularly vulnerable to that kind of self-shaping message because when you're less sure who and what you are and you're in the middle of a transition, you're trying to figure out who and what you are, the world recognizing you as already being a certain way and speaking to you as somebody who's already that way can have a powerful impact on you coming to be that way and coming to see yourself in that way. So one of the things I talked about in my uh, book, which I thought was a wonderful example of this, was uh, it, and they've taken it out. I've always wondered if they took it out because I criticized it in my book or not. But what to expect when you're expecting, which is just this sort of monster pregnancy advice book, used to have a picture at the beginning of each chapter. Each chapter corresponded to a month. And the picture said underneath what you, in capital letters, may look like or should look like. I can't remember which it is. I think it was may look like, but the should was implicit. (laughs) Um, And actually, interestingly, that book, which is a huge phenomenon, is written entirely in the second person from start to finish. Anyhow, these pictures didn't look like anybody ever looks. For one thing, they had no arms and no head, and they were transparent, so they didn't look like anybody ever looked. But you were supposed to be able to figure out from that, you know, how big your baby bump was supposed to be, how much weight you were supposed to have gained, what the level of fetal development was. And I remember sitting there and reading this book and literally thinking, that's what I'm supposed to look like. Like I took it really literally. And then thinking, wait a minute, I can't look like that. This is a drawing that doesn't look like any person. But they even had you in big font and capital letters. So there's this really strong request that you identify in this really visceral way with what you're seeing. And I think that's an incredibly powerful effect. Much more broadly in my philosophical work that doesn't particularly have anything to do with reproduction, I'm fascinated by that kind of constitutive second-person speech intervention and the way that those kinds of second-personal recognitions play what I've argued is actually an ineliminable role in turning us from infant blobs that don't have a particular identity into a fully functioning adults who have a sense of who they are and what rules apply to them and what kind of social identity they're supposed to have. I think we actually induct people into selfhood by using that kind of second-person speech to a very large extent, and I'm really interested in how it works and how it works not just through explicit use sentences, but also through images that are designed to function second-personally in a sort of a wide range of things that I would count as speech. So we've talked a little bit about how we sort of construct our social identity, that is to say, what we kind of market ourselves as to the rest of society on the basis of these cues that we pick up from both mass media, popular culture, things like public service announcements, so that if a public service announcement you know, says, Y-O-U, are pregnant with capital letters, it's quite likely that I'll respond to that by saying, oh, yeah, right, that's me, I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And now I can pick up this information and use it to... Um, you know, add to my own personal file on who I am. Um, but you're presumably you're, you know, you said that this is an unavoidable component of what it is to live in a society. Presumably you're not passing any kind of like moral judgment on these public statements with the word you in them. 
what is it exactly that you want to recommend we do? Are you, like, are you proposing some sort of linguistic reform, or maybe it's just more sort of like self-awareness about how all these sort of social mechanisms work? Right. I'm certainly not suggesting that we do away with second-person speech. That would be crazy. And I would put the point even more strongly than you did. I don't think it's just a fact of living in society. I think we wouldn't turn into actual persons who can do things if we didn't have that process inducting us into being those persons. I mean, that's an argument for another time, but I want to say in the strongest possible sense, this is essential to what selfhood is, that it partly is constituted through this positive feedback cycle of recognizing yourself in speech acts that recognize you as being a certain way and then fiddling and adjusting accordingly. So yeah, I'm not trying to get rid of any of that. I would say two things. One is I think that it's built into the nature of that process that it can look like something importantly different than it actually is. These calls that recognize people as being a certain way are presented as though they're recognizing a reality that's already settled, whereas in fact they're helping to make that reality. And I think that when everybody involved loses sight of the constitutive work that this kind of speech does, they can treat things as settled natural facts that actually are not. So I'm sure that sounded very abstract, but I can give you a couple of really vivid examples. We use this kind of second person call to create or constitute worries and desires in people and then we act as if we're just satisfying the worries and the desires that people already had. So if you go back to what to expect when you're expecting, a lot of the language in there is is written in question and answer form and the questions are things like, I'm worried that my hairspray may be hurting my baby, what do you think? And then the answer is, well, when you pick a hairspray, you should do this, that. Of course, once we read that, now we're worried about the hairspray, but it's framed as if it's just addressing a worry that you already had as a kind of a public service, right? Whereas it's in fact generating that worry. Or another much, in some sense, much deeper and far-flung and and concerning example is the way that, I'll just keep on the reproductive theme because that's our theme, but I could easily have picked an example that had nothing to do with reproduction here. Think about the way that fertility clinics advertise their services, right? The line that fertility clinics use consistently is, well, we're just developing and offering this technology because women so desperately want to become biological parents, and so we're meeting a market need. But of course, when women look around and they see that millions of dollars of research money are being poured into creating these technologies which are then offered to you as something that you may want to take advantage of if you are having trouble conceiving. It creates the sense that all of science and culture are behind the idea that this is a desire that you're supposed to be having, that it's worth throwing tons of money and science at. And so it has a generative effect. So, I mean, this idea that we're just reflecting desires that are already there seems to me to be duplicitous. Um, I think that it's not typically like we're trying to trick people. It's more like we just lose sight of just how powerful the constitutive work is that these kinds of messages do. And so we confuse addressing given natural desires or concerns with creating and shaping those desires and concerns. So I think that just some kind of 
critical attention to what the rhetorical effects are of this kind of messaging is helpful. The other point I would make is that to some extent we can play with how we respond to these messages. We are not deterministically constituted by them. I don't think that we can escape them altogether. I don't think that there's ever going to be some sort of, I don't think that the ideal is for us to be self-creating beings who just generate our identities out of nothing without in any way being shaped by our culture or by what others are recognizing us as being. But on the other hand, if we don't reflect on it, we can miss ways in which we can respond to that in productive or creative or playful ways. And so I think that getting self-reflective and curious about the way that speech functions to constitute us can sort of open up possibilities for resistance and subversion that we wouldn't have otherwise noticed. Rebecca Kukla, thank you, Y-O-U, for a very stimulating podcast. No, thank you. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening.